It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because This Might Get Uncomfortable starts right now with Jason Robel and Whitney Lordson. So I've known you, Doc, for many, many years now. We've had such a wonderful relationship for probably, God, a good six or seven years, both being Detroit natives and in the health and wellness field. And you're someone that I have consistently looked up to as a source of such wisdom and sound research and someone who is constantly being on the latest and greatest in in terms of plant-based nutrition and, and obviously specializing in cardiac health. But having you on right now seems to be so perfectly timed with, you know, the the massive amount of information and misinformation around health and immunity and wellness. And I just feel like it's the perfect time to have you on the podcast. So thanks so much for being available today. Well, that's a awesome introduction, which means for 53 years, I wandered the planet looking for a smile coach. And then seven years ago, there you appeared, always brightening up the room, brightening up Instagram, brightening up pretty much everywhere. So right back at you, buddy. I appreciate it. And I want to just jump into the deep end because we, you know, here on This Might Get Uncomfortable, we have a, a tendency with all of our guests just to fling off the floaties and jump in the deep end of the pool. And, and I have so many things I want to talk to you about, especially given in the time of recording this podcast, everything going on with corona and COVID-19 and just general human health. So, you know, right off the jump, Doc, I'm so curious. And for our listeners as well, there seems to be that seems to be there is such a such a dearth, such a deluge of information every single day from so many news sources and so many you know so-called health experts and so many medical professionals. How does a person, first of all, know what to listen to, or how would you recommend a person sift through the litany of information that just we are just bombarded with every single day? And how do we stay sane and know what to do for our health right now? I guess that's the first question is, how the heck do we know what's real or not? Well, ultimately, I mean, in a very philosophical way, that's a very challenging question. And it has a sub-question. How much time a day do you want to spend doing what you just described? Because there clearly is a downside to being too plugged in. You know, some of us have more time than we had a month ago. And spending it all browsing every site from traditional news outlets to alternative news outlets to holistic outlets to conspiracy theory outlets, of which there are a lot, can be exhausting and is probably not to be recommended. I personally, you know, I love the term high intensity as it applies to interval training. And I kind of joke, I've got my high intensity yoga on days that are busy to get a uh, Tibetan flow in. I've got my high intensity meditation, my 12 minute Kirtan Kriya meditation. And I kind of approach news the same to just stay up to date. I will browse, but I won't spend hours to at least be aware what the topics are out there. And, you know, it could be any channel. I tend for the science. I'll visit medicalexpress.com. These are all sites I don't have any, you know, affiliation with. Medical News Today. There's one called news-medical.net, Science Daily. I will visit Natural News, and I've already ticked off some people because <laughs> it can have a political viewpoint that I ignore, but there is some natural health data as simple as the advantages of certain berries in your diet. I don't really find that too political, so you know I will wander over there. If you want the conspiracies, you can get a quick look at what's going on, and I'm not going to read into you know and get down into every one of them. But um, I get a lot of emails from my friends in the conspiracy world. Uh, you know, is the government being up front? Is Bill Gates being up front? Was China being up front? Is vaccination being up front? You know, really at the present time, there has to be a little trust. I think, you know, Dr. Fauci has gotten a lot of credit for being a calming, authentic, science-based man. Probably not on the take from pharma and vaccine makers and such. And I think he's been a wonderful, wonderful, uh, you know, kind of a source out there of credibility and integrity and honesty and scientific process. Because 
I think we need to alter the scientific process a bit for urgency. We can't do three-year randomized clinical trials right now when our high, you know, the next three, four weeks are going to be maybe the toughest. We all hope they'll be the toughest, and then we can see some sanity come back. So we have to improvise, and there's a real tension right now. Do you just support oxygen, look for problems, cardiac monitor, intubate, adjust oxygen? Do you use hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin? And now there's actually an alternative protocol, hydroxychloroquine and doxycycline, which is a common antibiotic like tetracycline with potentially less side effects in hydroxychloroquine or azithromycin. And then you get into even things that we can talk about this that are not considered standard, but are really available cheap and generally non-toxic like IV vitamin C, which is in certain university protocols. Um, Inhaled nitric oxide, it was just announced this morning, the Massachusetts General Hospital. And, you know, that puts a little stamp of uh, credibility and research capability is going to be demoing inhaled nitric oxide for lung benefit, antiviral impact, but it has to be studied. So I think it is, in fact, a very hard road. And that's why I think the basics will remain the basics. Social distancing, wash your hands, gloves and masks are now the norm, good sleep, amazing diet, stress management. And we have to keep up the data on the rest. I mean, I have my own personal protocol I am doing. We can talk about it. I can speak about a university. I am a university professor, but I'm not a university professor who's chief of critical care medicine and journal editor of critical care medicine. But there is such an individual in Norfolk who's put out his own suggested preventive protocol. So I'd rather talk about that. It kind of takes the heat off of me and puts puts the heat on a very well-regarded, you know, internationally known academic expert and such. So, you know, we can talk about all those things. Uh, there isn't an absolute way. I mean, did the president respond quick enough, not quick enough? Were masks hidden in and ventilators hidden in warehouses in New York? Were they not hidden? I mean, honestly, love your family, love your pets, eat well, be kind to people, uh, follow all the CDC guidelines. And um, I hope we're through this, you know, in a month or less. Yeah, that was just such a wonderful summary. And you actually answered a lot of the questions that I was going to dig into. We can maybe even dig in a few layers deeper on the hydroxychloroquine and, um, and some of the nitric oxide stuff you mentioned. In terms of the nitty gritty, right? Because as you said, Doc, you know, you have your personal protocol. I have mine. I'm curious, you know, because the listeners I know are very much interested on a day-to-day because we've heard so many things about, oh, take this much vitamin A, take this much glutathione, take this much vitamin C, do elderberry. Wait, don't do elderberry. So I think just in terms of, of supplementation and specific foods or nutrients, what are some of the top level ones that you found effective or you've heard like, okay, definitely right now, these are the things that a person ought to focus on having in their nutritional regime right now? What are some of those things you'd recommend? Right. And, you know, the caveat in your question, excellent question, is what have been found to be effective? Because we really don't know that. We assume social distancing, hand washing, and masks, and gloves are effective, but, you know, we're not going to wait for a study. There actually just was a serious study published on masks in viral illnesses this week in a major journal called Nature. So we have some scientific support. We have to have a little faith and a little common sense on some of this. So there is no proven protective protocol beyond that. Yet, I'll again, I will quickly um, reference that in my searching to recommend to my patients, recommend to my hospital, you know, the best approach for good patient outcomes. I mean, preventing illness, as well as uh, trying to treat these super sick people. We have clogging up hospitals, you know, from your time in Detroit uh, that are just overwhelmed. There is a academic physician, as I mentioned, East Virginia Medical School, who's uh, chairman of critical care medicine. And I think rather bravely, he put out an 11-page guide that they're using in Norfolk, Virginia. His name is Paul Merrick, M-A-R-I-K-M-D, chief of pulmonary critical care medicine. What does he suggest with limited data and his criteria were might help cheap, safe, and maybe effective? So his cocktail is Vitamin C, 500 milligrams twice a day, 
you know, we can argue you and I want to get a lot of it and everybody should want to get a lot of it from cherries and leafy greens and oranges and tangerines and clementines. I urge everybody to get them from Whole Foods. Nobody's going to run into trouble with 500 milligrams twice a day of vitamin C. There are people doing more. Let's just say that wouldn't be a bad place. I'll give a side comment. The interesting feature most people don't know is humans can't make vitamin C. All but four species on the planet have the ability to make vitamin C and lots of it. So the dog, the cat, the squirrel, and the goat make all the vitamin C their body needs. In fact, <laughs> they take glucose. It's one enzyme, glucose, enzyme, vitamin C. Our enzyme in every human has been shut down tens of millions of years ago. Perhaps we were living in the Garden of Eden and eating leafy greens so much like a gorilla. We didn't need that enzyme anymore, so we lost it. So we're very um, subject to vitamin C, relative low intake. Uh, Plant-based eaters undoubtedly get a lot more. Number two, and people have been hearing about this, zinc. Now, this particular Paul Merrick, MD, recommended 75 to 100 milligrams a day for no more than two months because the usual zinc, uh, you might find a multivitamin, is about 15 milligrams a day. So you can tell, obviously, I'm actually not even doing 75 to 100, and I do a lot of supplements. I am very happy with I am very happy with 25 to 50. Okay, I'll take a little drink of water. But um, 75 to 100 was what he recommended, zinc gluconate, zinc piquilinate. There's a lot of zinc in foods, plant-based foods. There are zinc in oysters. I'm not an oyster promoter. You're not an oyster promoter. I'd rather <laughs> get it from sesame seeds and legumes. Okay, that's number number three. This may be a supplement and a molecule people are not familiar with. It can be called quercetin or quercetin, Q-U-E-R-C-E-T-I-N. I've been pretty hot, naturally found in onion, garlic, and apples, plus other whole foods. Very useful in people that have seasonal allergies and a lot of natural seasonal allergy supplements at the health food store have quercetin. Dozens, at least, of studies showing it has a positive benefit on blood vessels, blood pressure. But now it's immune function and possibility of quieting down those cytokines we're hearing about, those chemicals that may overreact to this virus and cause this terrible storm and lung damage. Anyways, that's 500 to 100 to 1,000 milligrams a day. Melatonin, you know, if you talk to some natural docs that are in the oncology world, and they may be MDs or NDs, naturopathic docs, very commonly using significant doses of melatonin for their immune altering effect, their ability to jack up our immune system, our natural killer cells. This is a milligram at night. That's a relatively modest dose. I can't think of anybody that couldn't take a one milligram of melatonin at night. And amazingly, Dr. Merrick thought it might be worth uh, putting it in the program. Many people use a little more than that for sleep. Some use a little less. And finally, vitamin D. Everybody's hearing about vitamin D. You know, they're in the wonderful mushroom family. As a natural source, they're in fortified plant milks, but 1,000 to 4,000 units a day of vitamin D3. There are vegan versions. There are some that come from lanolin, so they're not vegan. You can find the kind you want. So that is a five-component program, and I'm happy with that. You know, elderberry might be of value. There's actually been some discussion that might be of concern, but my reading says we don't know, but it's not of concern. So it's you know, optional. Garlic comes up on the list. There's a whole lot more that could be put on the list, but I'm happy to keep it, you know, K-I-S-S. If five supplements are, are even simple, I'm happy to stop there. Gotcha. And then in terms of how people are treating their lifestyle right now, again, it's, you know, so much information on you know, rest and sleep and, and fitness. And of course, the mental health side of this is such a massive component in regards to, you know, stress and hypertension and elevated cortisol levels. So moving away from just the nutrition and food side, of course, we'll come back to that because you're such a, a wonderful resource of information on food and nutrition. But I'm curious in terms of, you know, stress management right now, meditation, mindfulness tips, what would you recommend for people that are really struggling you know, with anxiety and stress and the mental side of this epidemic right now, because that's a huge component too. Right. And I think it's really important uh, before we control the world, we have to control ourselves. 
internally before we can control externally. And, you know, some of us are spending a lot more time at home, spouses, significant others, children's pets, elderly parents, whatever the situation might be, or we're not spending it with anybody. And that's even more distressing. There was a nice little article uh, by Joe Dispenza. Some people uh, love his writings, New York Times bestselling author on the impact of mindfulness on your immune system. That was in mindbodygreen.com this week. If anybody wants to look at it, I read it with interest. There are some hyperlinks to actual studies on all this. But I've been been really big in general on trying to teach simple skills to my patients, but I've upped that game a lot this last month. And we've talked about something called 478 breathing, something that Andrew Weil, University of Arizona, made pretty popular over the last 20 years. Breathe in through your nose slowly for four seconds. Hold it for seven seconds. If you want to get fancy, put your tongue at the top of the roof of your mouth and then breathe out slowly for eight seconds and do that four times. Four, seven, eight breathing times four takes about 75 seconds. And there is some data. It can calm down your autonomic nervous system. You want to use, you know, Headspace, Calm apps. Maybe you've done transcendental training like I have. Perhaps you have, but, you know, the classes I'm sure not open. Uh, There's so many great online teachings. What I've actually been teaching, though, just to get to the point, because there are so many options, you just need one, just like supplements. You need a short list of supplements. You need, you know, sleep, hand washing, distancing, the rest. I teach the Kirtan Kriya, which some people will know, KKM, K-I-R-T-A-N, K-R-I-Y-A. It's a 12-minute meditation. Everybody does the same thing, so there's no secret mantra like Transcendental, but it is mantra-based. It's taught by a professor of uh, neurology and psychiatry at university, not at University of Arizona, but it's in Tucson, uh, Dr. Uh, Singh D.S. Khalsa, K-H-A-L-S-A. What I love about it is there's 25 publications. He finds people with early memory deficit or caretakers of elderly parents with dementia, which are high-risk, stressed-out people. He teaches them the simple 12-minute meditation or simply has them listen to nice music like Mozart for 12 minutes. And then he schleps them over to UCLA and does spec scans and telomerase measurements and immunologic measurements, really sophisticated science. And in those 20, 25 publications, this 12-minute simple meditation, you, you actually sing out the same four tones that everybody uses, sa, ta, nama. Your fingers are moving. That's called a mudra, as I'm sure you know. And you sit quietly with your eyes closed and you're done. Anybody can do it. A child could do it. An adult can do it. I made a little YouTube of it this week, but it's out there. Alzheimer'sprevention.org is Dr. Kalsa's research website. And there's a one-page PDF for free, or you can probably find you know, a number of YouTube. So that's what I'm having my patients doing because I love that you know, intersection of science and Eastern and tool. I just wanted to have a tool. It's the HIIT, the high intensity meditation. It's the best I can find. That's amazing. And for the listener, if you want to find Dr. Khan's video and all of the resources that he or I are mentioning in this episode, you guys can go to the show notes for this episode at wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L evatr.com in the show notes. We'll have all of these links and all the resources for you guys to check out. All right, Doc. So we go to these ideas of, of managing our mind and the presence practice. I mean, of course, you know, in recent history, you know, Eckhart Tolle and a lot of the you know, spiritual teachers and meditation teachers, and, and we're talking about Kundalini Yoga and, and these ancient practices, there's nothing really new about them. I mean, the idea of presence, the idea of mindfulness, talk about Zen Buddhism. I mean, these are really ancient things that seem to have been gaining momentum and coming into vogue in the last, you know, 40 to 50 years since the 60s. And it's interesting, you know, you, you mentioned the intersection of, um, of spirituality and science right now. And, and it's not really a woo-woo question per se, but I, I'm curious as we divert from science for a second, what do you feel like this situation with the coronavirus and COVID-19, what do you feel like it's here to teach us as a human species? What do you feel like the lessons are that we can glean from all of this? And we might not even know yet because we're obviously not done. We're not even close to done, we think. But so far, you know, on a spiritual level or a humanistic level, uh, an anthropological level, what do you think this whole situation is here to show us about ourselves and our relationship with the earth and each other? Yeah, I've been stretching my own personality to try and uh, merge somewhat with um, Deepak Chopra, perhaps, or others. 
in that uh, I started, I generally email my patients a little update, what's going on in my clinic, my own lectures or writings or YouTubes or whatever, twice a month. But I don't know, about three weeks ago, I just accidentally did it two days in a row, third day in a row. And now they're emailing, please continue, continue. And a lot of times I'm sharing either my experiences or I'm finding other uplifting findings. So, and a lot has been on just that question. I mean, what are we going to learn from this? And I think for sure, my main message to them has been gratitude for any gift you have that hasn't yet been taken away. And uh, that's mainly going to be your health. If you so far have gotten through this pandemic and you've not been hospitalized, you've not been acutely ill and your loved one's the same, you know, I don't, we always have to be mindful and thoughtful about the people that are doing poorly or have actually passed. But uh, you have to wake up with a sense of gratitude if, you know, you can move your toes and your fingers and you don't have a fever and you're breathing. I was taught as a child a two-line Hebrew prayer that I'm not being, you know, I'm not promoting any particular faith there, but it goes by two words in Hebrew, ani, which is, I am grateful. And it is a traditional thing to say, I am grateful for the fact that you've returned my soul to my body in much humility. And there's a few other words, but that's basically it. And I have more, as I get older, emphasized that very special 30 seconds. My eyes have just opened. I'm not going to look at my phone. And I'm just going to have that moment of gratitude. Because, you know, as a medical doctor, I know how fragile health is, whether it's a heart attack, a stroke, a motorcycle accident, or now a virus that we either know how we contacted or we didn't. So I think, you know, appreciating uh, the small things in life. I think the fact that we've returned to the house to have home-cooked meals and around a dinner table, often with family in unison, is a gift. It's a very big price to pay for that gift. And that we play game boards and we're doing puzzles and, you know, hopefully not on the internet all the time is a bit of a gift. The fact that we have actually seen pollution and water quality and actually the very motion of the earth has diminished because trucks, planes, and trains aren't vibrating. I mean, there is there is some benefit to the planet. It don't think it's going to be long last because I think we have to get back to the level of insane commerce and activity that we had. But at least we can ponder for a minute what the planet once was before we industrialized it all. And a lot of good came out of the industrialization, but not all good with global warming and other issues that are at hand. You know, appreciating others, the fact that we're connecting and the distancing has led us to, again, appreciate that it's more important to call an elderly person or a lonely person or connect by a technology where you actually see them and talk. I mean, these are, you know, additional gifts and lessons. Some of us have more time to read and study. I've heard a number of people, you know, taking up new hobbies or playing harmonica or ukulele or some <laughs> other such thing. So all these, you know, there's, there's undoubtedly a, a long list. Ariana Huffington has a weekly email if you sign up for. I kind of like her. I think she's quite philosophical. She was writing more about the importance of sleep and, you know, she's changed her focus. And she had a beautiful piece that came on Sunday about you know, Frodo in the Lord of the Rings saying, I wish it need not have happened in my time. Kind of wishing this whole thing went away, but it's here and, you know, and hopefully it won't be here forever. But we were on such an insane spiral of wanting and needing and buying. And, you know, it's not a plea against capitalism or for socialism or anything else, but, you know, simple little things are so important in our life now. So that's good. That's a beautiful answer. Thank you. Thanks for going there with me on that. You know, in terms of healthcare, Doc, and kind of zooming out to a more macro level with certain hospitals being overloaded, before the conversation we had, you were telling me about how some of the hospitals back in, in Detroit are doing, Metro Detroit. And, you know, the thing that I've been having a lot of discussions with, and I'm, I'm curious how deep you want to go into this, is the conversation of, you know, socialized or universal healthcare, and again, not ascribing this to any political party having this conversation with you, but the idea of having you know, a government-provided system of care versus a corporatized one, you know, do you see this kind of moving us more in that direction or not at all? And I guess generally, you know, 
as someone who is in the healthcare system and providing the resources and care that you do, what is your opinion on one versus the other? Do you have a preference? Do you feel like we should make a shift? Do you feel like it would be better for this country? Yeah, I'm just curious what your opinions are on that and, and if this will feed that conversation at all this current situation. Yeah, you know, um, really, really good question. And, you know, so far, the only real change I've seen happen because of uh, the current pandemic is they're actually graduating medical students about four months early to get their degree and get them into the trenches, hopefully with with excellent, you know, personal protective equipment so they are at the least risk possible. You know, the beginning of all this, clearly people were walking into uh, at-risk settings with less than complete personal protective equipment or PPE, as it's said in the field. You know, it hasn't really changed the dynamics of insurance. Uh, So one change is this telehealth, the fact that at least temporarily, a doctor can consult across state lines, a doctor can provide care by video or other secure links something that I have done for a number of years and found to be highly effective. There are situations it's clearly not appropriate, but there's many, many medical interactions. These are going to last on, and I think they'll be very hard to take away because of the reception by both physicians and patients and the whole uh, thing. Uh, you know, maybe it will be, you know, returned to prior. But is this going to shift us more to one payer? I mean, you know, again, not a political statement, but what has the government taken over and done really well with? You know, the post office or, you know, the IRS or, I, don't know, I mean, I'm trying to think of some other thing. Uh, you know, on the one hand, if there was single payer, this is a whole different topic than Corona, but, you know, the billions of dollars of excess testing, excess cover your ass, ordering of procedures, the malpractice risks, and also greed, the fact that there's greed when you're a solo or a entrepreneurial physician in your own practice and all is, these are huge problems. And, you know, a lot of people say, I don't remember the exact number, but, you know, three quarters of all tests ordered potentially could be done without, you know, when you go to a Cleveland clinic or a Henry Ford healthcare system in Detroit, where it's all, you know, single staff employed. You know, you have more control and more institutional protocols. You still got to rely on good people. So a single payer system has the potential diminish the variability in treatment. Why does a person in New Orleans get totally different treatment for, you know, a condition the first time they have evidence of diabetes and a person in San Francisco might, you know, there is such a range and, you know, getting, wrapping your hands around a single electronic medical record system so we could share information for efficiency and avoiding duplication. I mean, I can't tell when I order a cholesterol on you if it wasn't just done by the family doctor and can I ever get the result? And yeah, of course, I do actually ask and I do strive and I get things faxed over, but all of that could be eliminated. Dollars would go down, efficiency would go up, quality care would go up, unnecessary procedures would go down. But, you know, you've got the pushback of the last 60 years of entrepreneurial medicine and investments and also I don't see it happening. It's a revolution that, again, looking how Obamacare took a few steps forward and now it's pretty much dismantled. I don't see it happening. I mean, I think, you know, a lot of docs are, you know, those that have been entrepreneurial right now and own their own clinics. Well, outpatient clinics are empty and it's not, it's, is not a good time. It'd be a time that a lot of docs right now might say, give me a salary. You know, uh, I spent a lot of years building buildings and putting in equipment and trying to develop the highest quality setting. But, you know, just like a restaurant owner, how long can you hang on with what overhead? It's also true of dental practices. So um, it, this might, that might be the pushback. Some people will just say, they throw up their shoulders, as many family practice docs have done. And just give me a stable hospital salary and benefits, and I'm happier than taking the risk. Because those that take the risk, including my own clinic, you know, it's it's edgy right now. Yeah, and in terms of that, with your patients and perhaps beyond just the the patients that you're seeing, do you see them taking this as an opportunity, perhaps, to reevaluate some of the underlying health conditions or lifestyle choices that they've been facing? Because you know, the one thing that certainly I've been seeing over and over on the news and the information out there is that people with pre-existing health conditions or underlying health conditions are at higher risk 
first of all, what kind of underlying conditions do you think put people higher at risk? And related, do you see this situation as helping people to, for lack of a better word, take their health more seriously? You know, we all have seen some pretty funny humor amongst a very tragic overall setting. And, you know, what's the first thing you're going to go to the A class or the Weight Watchers class when, you know, this is all over is a common one. You know, I think it has. And, you know, so, yes, we are concerned that being overweight, that's kind of new in the past two weeks. Some data that the death rate from COVID-19 in New Orleans is much higher than the death rate in New York. Rates of obesity in the South are much higher. There's obesity everywhere, but they are the highest in the South. They're pretty darn awful in Michigan. It's the uh, king of the northern states, but uh, Louisiana, Mississippi, Georgia, and such traditionally have the most obesity. That's a big one. Hypertension is, um, you know, it's hypertension involves 100 million people in the United States, and it's a lethal disease for many. But statistically, there's concern coronary artery disease, clogged arteries, heart failure, you know, these uh, diabetes, certainly if you are on immunosuppressives or rheumatoid arthritis. So there is the possibility we're going to be able to rebound and truly have an audience that will listen to the fact that self-care, um, you know, that healthcare at home may be more powerful than healthcare in the office, healthcare in the grocery store may be more powerful, are, you know, more important than ever. I think even right now, some people have gravitated their lifestyle, their fitness, their sleep, their stress management in a positive direction out of either fear or extra time or so many comments everywhere about the importance of this. Unfortunately, you know, lockdown also means there's the Oreos, Oreos there's the chips, there's the uh, Coca-Cola case, and uh, not everybody's gravitating to healthier. I, I, in my own life, I'm actually eating better. It was always great, but there's more purple cabbage and sprouts in my diet now than there were two months ago. And uh, and I'm actually working out a little bit more. I put a little more emphasis on it all. I hope more people adopt that approach. Yeah, they, that if we can take the message that the risk was increased with diseases one through 10, and just as Michael Greger lectures in his annual lecture, diseases one through 10 have a major lifestyle component, whether we talk heart disease, cancer, diabetes, lung disease, autoimmune conditions, you know on and on, even Alzheimer's and all, that if we could appreciate that for the next pandemic, we might be able to approach it with a healthier public, that would be an amazing rebound. But I'm not sure that's, you know, it's all pharma, pharma, pharma right now, which thank God for some pharmacologic agents, they help us, but it isn't the only answer. And it's the one that gets the most press at national press conferences over and over. Right. Well, in terms of pharma, I mean, obviously, you mentioned at the very beginning of this episode, you know, the hydroxychloroquine and the nitric oxide and some of the other things. And without, again, getting too political or getting into conspiracy theory, you know, this idea of, of vaccines coming and, um, you know, the notion that potentially the, you know, the, the government or health officials would, would come out with a vaccine at some point and recommend everyone get it. In general, not just the coronavirus, but in general, for something on this scale, you know, would a vaccine typically be something you would um, say would be a last resort rather than a first option? You know, I think it's early. Well, we, you know, it's going to take a drastic response to the fact that the, you know, the ease that this disease is being spread is, you know, multiplying is exponential. We simply can't afford if we can develop a strategy to prevent the next you know, it may be the rebound of this virus, and it might be the next virus. Um, there's eight different kinds of coronavirus that are spreading around the world right now. And we simply, we can't afford it from every standpoint, you know, illness, death, social connection, and the financial, you know, destruction of uh, many economies right now, hopefully temporarily. So I don't know what it's going to be. I mean, is it to close these live animal markets in China? Where you know more than once it looks like these these viruses from MERS to SARS and now Corona have erupted from, and I hope the Chinese government does that. Is it going to be some international response that the next time this happens we literally jump on it with open communication? And you know that's again to the conspiracy idea. Did the Chinese government really reveal the full extent of this uh, as early as possible and all? Um, and then is it going to be a vaccine? And I mean. 
yeah, I think we need to explore a vaccine and we need to move forward. Um, I'm not sure I want to be the first person to volunteer for it. <laughs> but, I, but I am very you know, much interested that we work hard to develop one because we need a drastic response. I just, you know, we know how viruses mutate and change and uh, we develop flu vaccines that sometimes are on target and sometimes hardly address the strain that ultimately, you know, gets out there. So I'm going to leave it to the vaccine developers, and I hate to say it, to the pharmaceutical industry and governmental panels to try their best. I know the Israelis have been really digging in for a few months, and I follow their progress because they often are really cutting edge. I mean, I kind of hope we can come up with one that we can actually believe is safe, effective, and uh, available. But, you know, I know there's a lot of skepticism, I'm sure, amongst your listeners that we're going to let the government actually do this. But yeah, I'm all for it. Mm -hmm. And and what lessons, if any, because obviously you're such an incredible researcher and, and you go so deep into so many facets of not only this particular situation, but health in general, in looking at our history and what we've overcome, what lessons do you think that we could glean and take into this from the Spanish flu or the polio epidemic or some of the other influenza outbreaks that we've faced in, say, the last century, century and a half? Looking back at that and how humanity prevailed from those things, what philosophies or tactics or mindsets do you think could be useful to apply to our current situation from those historical moments? I don't I haven't heard a lot of people talk about this. There's a very famous book in the Italian literature about what it was like to live in the Black Plague in Milan and I think the 1400s called The Betrothed, Il Promessi Sposi. I'm not Italian. I love everything Italian like lots of people. It's a required reading for all high school students in Italy. It's a great, great book. But just trying to get a handle when you didn't know what a bug was and you certainly didn't have an internet to spread news all you saw was death everywhere. And of course, you always would say probably Satan or God or sin or something. And really in the Spanish flu, I mean, how much sophisticated understanding of the transmission of viruses and uh, therapies and hand washing and all that. Now, I don't think we're at the pinnacle of all knowledge, but we've never had times like these where we're having you know, a pandemic, hopefully not to the magnitude And I think our response has been much more rapid and draconian than 1918 because we do now have, you know, a much more advanced medical system and virology and communications. And we've learned our lesson, old Castaneda, if you don't, you know, remember your history, you're doomed to repeat it. So, you know, what have we learned from those experiences, you know, that we have to take massive organized action and even if it's, you know, a full, complete national shutdown for two weeks, you know, we're almost there, but there are exceptions. And, uh, you know, politically, maybe it's smarter just to shut down the hot areas like Detroit and not shut down Wyoming, where there's not a lot of cases that may actually be a better choice. Uh, it's hard to say. We'll only know at the end. But I think just like, you know, we have alert systems for nuclear attack and, uh, you know, we monitor for seismic changes that might indicate the next earthquake or a volcano erupting and such. I mean, we're going to have to develop the same kind of watch systems for the next wave and attack as quick as possible. I mean, you know, that's why I don't put a lot of blame on people. I mean, I've been in medicine for over 30 years. I mean, this is so unprecedented. Yeah, we could have said, you know, MERS was more prevalent in the Middle East, not that those lies are any less valuable than ours. And SARS was, I think, a little bit more in Canada, but at least the United States. I mean, none of us, I don't think anybody, you know, alive, there's a few people that were alive in 1918, not too many. We've never seen this. I mean, the risk isn't battle of the bulge in Europe where young people were dying. The risk is, your, you know, your neighbor and your gas station attendant. And it's just unprecedented. So it will challenge everybody. How do we prepare for the next time this comes up, which I hope is a very long time away. Yeah. And one thing that I've been seeing too, and I want to touch on some of the cardiovascular components of this being that that's uh, obviously a huge area of focus for your practice and your expertise. But one thing that I'm seeing that is a bit concerning to me, Doc, is is um, how there seems to be a little bit too much, boy, overconfidence with certain people that say, you know, I don't have any underlying health conditions or I'm taking all my supplements and I've got all these things and and people 
that in some areas are not doing the social distancing and, and not doing some of the recommended protocols. What would you, you know, what would you say to comment on on people that are being a little too, I don't know, egotistic or overconfident about their level of health in all this? Yeah, I agree. And it's um you can understand, again, for most of us, first time in our life we've been asked to restrict our activity to this degree and all. And there isn't complete um, you know, alliance uh, alignment with it. Unfortunately, young people are dying. 20-year-olds, I mean, I friends of mine, I mean, my friends are healthy. They eat well, mostly medical healthcare professionals, nutritionists, nurses, CCU people. Of course, the healthcare workers are at risk, but these 32-year-olds and 34-year-olds and they're runners and they're sprouters and they're, you know, meditators. I don't think plant-based diets, not all my friends are plant-based eaters uh, exclusively, hopefully at least partially. Pretty bold to suggest that a whole food plant-based diet prevents this illness, and I wouldn't say that, and I don't see too many people saying it either, so we should stay away from that. But it's a real deal, and young people are getting sick, and young people are at risk, and uh, this is not a time to have you know, excessive confidence and bravado. Uh, everybody toe the line. Yeah. I want to talk about your book, Lipoprotein A, The Heart's Quiet Killer, and certainly this is a, an extension of you with stress reduction strategies or rather risk reduction strategies and talking about you know these estimates that one in five people have these elevated levels of this type of cholesterol called lipoprotein A, which can increase the risk for cardiovascular disease, blocked arteries, blood clots, stroke. You know, How can you dig deeper into that and how this particular protein and general cardiovascular health, why is that so important to focus on, especially right now? Well, thank you. And it, you know, it seems like it's a complete segue. It's not a complete segue, and you already alluded to that because, as we mentioned a few minutes ago, people with known or even possibly unknown cardiovascular disease, and let me just explain cardiovascular disease, heart disease, it's a broad term. It includes high blood pressure, tens of millions of people, number one cause of death in the world, according to something called the Global Burden of Disease Study, is high blood pressure. And the diseases related to high blood pressure, like heart attack, strokes, congestive heart failure, loss of limbs. It's not a cause of death, but erectile dysfunction and sexual dysfunction from blood pressure related blood vessel damage. So uh, cardiovascular disease, hypertension, congestive heart failure, the clogging of arteries requiring medicine, stents, bypass, or creating a heart attack, strokes, blockage in the legs and kidney arteries. So it's very broad. But what we mainly focus on is the risk of clogging your arteries and one day suffering a heart attack or dropping dead from clogged arteries, which occurs in general, you know, up to 2,500 times a day in the United States alone. And there is this little race. Is there going to be a day next week when the number of deaths from COVID-19 exceed cardiovascular disease, you know, briefly, and it might happen, which would be, it's number three right now. Every day, heart disease, number one, cancer, number two, and right now COVID-19 is number three. Uh, in the United States. So, uh, you know, it's on an accelerated path. People are saying April 15, April 16, the number one cause of death in the United States will be COVID-19. That's horrible. That alone should motivate people or educate people to get back and follow the rules. Yeah, it's very uh, scary data. But so um, cardiovascular disease, because people with cardiovascular disease seem to be at more risk of, if they're getting exposed to COVID-19 virus, uh, actually getting the disease, getting it badly and dying, there is an overlap and a segue of lipoprotein A. And specifically, hey, well, let's go into what lipoprotein little a is. There has already been warnings from myself and others that it really is a, a liability to learn that you've inherited this genetic cholesterol in terms of the COVID virus. Some of the university experts have warned, you know, take even extra precautions if you happen to know you're a family that's inherited this. But just to break it down, because it's really very simple, in the 1960s, 1970s, the National Institutes of Health and the Framingham Study and the Adventist Health Study answered the questions in a preliminary way. Why do people have heart attacks? Why do people have strokes? Because in the 1940s, they thought it was just aging. That's what a textbook would have said, because there actually weren't that many heart attacks prior to World War II when FDR had a stroke and when Eisenhower had his heart attack a lot of dollars started funding into research. Why? And we said smoking, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, high blood sugar, 
And if mom, dad, brother, or sister have had an early heart attack, stroke, cardiac death, bypass, you're at risk. Five little simple factors. The problem was when you calculate all that, there's something called residual risk. It doesn't nearly explain all the heart attacks, all the strokes, all the bypasses. It explains a large portion of them. And subsequently, we found certain substances in the blood that uh, may be involved with the development of atherosclerosis we hadn't even heard of. Well, it turns out when you do these studies, this molecule that was identified in 1963 with a very hard to pronounce name, lipoprotein little a. Little a means lowercase a, so when you write it out, you don't put a capital A because there's another kind of cholesterol with a capital A. The HDL cholesterol that people hear of, we call it the happy one, the good one. When you break down its structure, it has a capital A. Now we have this cholesterol lipoprotein lowercase a, but we call it little a. Lipoprotein little a was discovered in 1963. Uh, It was unknown till then, and it took a couple decades to fully appreciate that it is the most common reason that goes beyond smoking, diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, family history, to explain why a young or middle-aged person has a stroke, heart attack, bypass, or stent. It's the biggest piece of the residual risk put all together. One out of every five or one out of every four people inherit this cholesterol from their parents. It's a gene and it's a family of genes and it's a blood test. The sad uh, current state is it doesn't show up in the standard cholesterol panel. You've probably, most listeners have had either at a wellness fair, at a church synagogue kind of fair, at your doctors, at your workplace, total cholesterol, HDL, Dale. Well, that's not lipoprotein little a. You have to check the next box at the family doctor, at the nurse practitioner, at the gynecologist and such. And it's covered. It's $25, $30 and they'll run this test and it'll come back. And if you're less than 75 nanomoles per liter, you have a normal level of lipoprotein A. Because it's genetic, you really only need to check it once in life. It's almost like a blood type. If you're type O, you're type O. It's not going to change. If you've checked your lipoprotein little a level at your family doctor or after listening to this interview or because you read my book and you find out you're normal, you're done. It's happy news. You didn't get it. You're in the 75% of people. But 25% of people is, you know, about 1.8 billion people or 90 million Americans. And by the time you're one years old, if you've inherited this, it's in your blood above normal. It can range a bit above normal to dramatically above normal because there's more than one gene involved. It's a little complex. But that's the problem, that it might be circulating in your blood. It's a form of LDL cholesterol with added components to its structure that make it stick to the wall of arteries and heart valves even more than the standard LDL. It's often called the sticky cholesterol. That was the title I was thinking about for the book. But I uh, didn't win the battle with the editor, so uh, (laughs) we didn't call it the sticky cholesterol book. But it is a sticky cholesterol. It's a bad actor, and it's just on the verge. If we can get past the coronavirus, I say lipoprotein A is like being able to buy Apple stock at $10 a share or something. You know, the next five years, you're going to hear about it over and over. You're going to see your family doctor and internist suggest you get it done once. It'll become part of the routine panel because back to conspiracy theories, pharmaceutical companies are finally getting focused on specific therapies for genetically inherited lipoprotein A. The current range of prescription drugs like Lipitor, everybody's heard of Lipitor, Crestor, do not lower lipoprotein little a. They actually sometimes cause it to go up, which isn't the direction you want it to go. And you know, the other drugs that your doctor might typically use. Um, exercise doesn't do much for it. We do have some data that whole food plant diets research project by Baxter Montgomery in Houston in 2018 may lower lipoprotein A. Uh, a woman who goes through menopause and decides to get on hormone replacement therapy and has an elevated lipoprotein A may see it come down some. But it's going to take, because there, you know, there are, this is a risk factor. You can have a high cholesterol and live to 100. You can smoke and live to 100. You can have an elevated lipoprotein A and not have a stroke or a heart attack or a valve replacement. But you are at much more risk and um, we need an agent. I have a practice full of patients 
a great guy I know who was jogging in uh, Central Park in New York at age 45. Boom, he had what we call sudden cardiac death. But miraculously, EMS revived him. He was having a heart attack. He found out he inherited. I mean, nobody would know. Uh, why do you have a heart attack at age 45? He was jogging in a healthy living guy, but super high level. And, you know, one after another, after another like that, it's estimated one out of every 14 open heart bypass surgeries is driven by the genetic inheritance of lipoprotein A as really the only factor. And one out of every seven valve replacements, there's a valve called your aortic valve, which is the most commonly operated on valve for it becoming calcified and degraded and unable to open called aortic stenosis. Well, this same cholesterol particle, lipoprotein little a, particularly likes to attack and scar the aortic valve. Very unusual because most other cholesterol particles don't do that. And one out of every seven valve replacements is currently felt to be due to this previously undetected elevated lipoprotein A. So if we could screen people at age 18 or 15 or 20 and uh, certainly institute healthy lifestyles, but hopefully have a effective agent for the rest of their lives, we would, or maybe we'll ultimately have gene technology, something called CRISPR-9 technology. You know, we've identified you're a family with uh, this gene and we can manipulate it so it's no longer active. That's a little space age, but it's being done now for certain cancer diagnoses and it's possible we'll be able to do that similarly uh, for uh, this particular you know, disease in the next decade. Wow. It's fascinating. So fascinating. Before- you know, it really is unknown. Yeah. Well, before we get this more advanced sort of space age, you know, gene modifying or gene detecting technologies, you briefly touched on, I think, some solutions. So for someone who finds out that they have this, you know, lipoprotein little a, what are the top level recommendations for someone to manage it if they find out they do have this? Sure. And first of all, simply, it's a blood test. You're going to your doctor in September, the world's back to normal. It's your annual physical, it's your worksite wellness checkup, something. Ask your doctor, hey, can you order a lipoprotein little a with my standard cholesterol panel? At the present time, many family doctors, gynecologists, nurse practitioners, PAs and such have not done that. It's there. It's there at Quest. It's there at LabCorp. It's there at hospital labs. They'll probably have to send it to the lab. You're not going to find too many clinics that are going to be able to run it right there on site unless it's a pretty bigger clinic. So ask for it. Particularly, let me talk about that, but if there's a family history, if you have a brother, a sister, mom, dad, aunts, uncles, and there's a lot of heart disease, strokes, you know that you had a grandparent with a valve replacement, particularly ask for it. That's kind of been the accepted reason to have your lipoprotein little a check. Now in Europe, they've now come to the point where they're recommending everybody get it done once in life, probably earlier the better, just to push somebody into a healthier lifestyle, put a little carrot at the end of the stick. You've got this inheritance, more important to follow, you know, a whole food diet and exercise and sleep and don't smoke and know your numbers, the rest of the numbers. So it is simply a simple blood test. It's very inexpensive. There's nothing exotic. It's just the knowledge that hasn't been out there about what it is, the risk. So that that would be the first response to your question. And I'll let you go with the next question. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, we hear a lot about epigenetics and how our lifestyle choices and our nutritional choices affect gene expressions. Is this something though that you would say falls under the category of, okay, we can manage the expression of this gene and how it proliferates or how it expresses in the body through lifestyle choices? I mean, how do we manage this from, from a, a genetic perspective? Right. It is a challenging concept. I had a patient today who had a cholesterol of 259, three months on a almost completely plant-based diet. It wasn't completely, it wasn't draconian. Cholesterol came down to 150. Now, not everybody can do that, but you know, a lot of people can drop their cholesterol 100 points with diet, and we can throw in you know, exercise. Lipoprotein A, we don't see that. Whole food plant diets, according to one study, may drop it, but nowhere near that degree. LDL cholesterol may drop like a rock if you modify your diet. It doesn't in everybody. Some people get really frustrated. Doc, I've changed my diet and my LDL and total cholesterol. I haven't really moved much. Why? And got to go through what their diet is and their thyroid status and their sleep and their stress. 
Lipoprotein A doesn't respond to diet like this or fitness or Zen meditation as far as we know. There's a couple things that are available right now that lower it. I mentioned hormone replacement therapy. If a woman's going to do that anyways, testosterone doesn't lower it. It's more the balancing of estrogen, progesterone, and testosterone in a woman. CoQ10, coenzyme Q10, pretty popular and expensive supplement at the big box stores. People seem to buy it and throw it in their basket, lowers it some. Aniacin is a B vitamin, vitamin B3, been around for 50 years as an agent to lower your total cholesterol and your triglycerides. It can lower lipoprotein A dramatic. It's a bit of a roll of the dice. I have a lot of my patients on niacin. It's not approved for lipoprotein A, but it's also an over-the-counter vitamin, so it doesn't exactly require an approval. But um, some of my patients will drop their lipoprotein A by 75%, like really significantly, and some just a little. And I don't think we really understand why that is. Is that genetics? Is that the brand? Is that the absorption? Um, there are side, uh, you know, there are downsides to niacin flushing and have to watch for gout and the blood sugar and such, uh, but it can be used. The standard academic and official statement is if you have one of these family histories of a lot of heart disease, and if you find out there's lipoprotein A in your family and that you also have it, get your numbers, your blood sugar, your blood pressure, and your LDL and total cholesterol, you know, really optimal, get them great. And that's usually a statin in the traditional world, knowing that a statin like Lipitor doesn't affect this particle, but it may still affect so much of the risk, you're better off down the road, you know, to use it. And, you know, there are people with their cholesterol is 300 and they have a high lipoprotein A and, you know, you really have to go there to try and minimize the risk, even if you can't make it perfect. So. It's a tough little bugger, which is why it's almost like the conversation about, you know, uh, vaccines and the current virus. We may not necessarily really want one, but we really need one. I don't really want another pharmaceutical agent for, you know, treating cholesterol, but lipoproteinate really needs one. So bring it on. Let the science and the big pharma companies, you know, put their best hats on and come up with one. And there is actually, there is a antibody to lipoprotein little a that is been tested in 200 humans with very good results and safety from just a preliminary, I think it's called phase two trial. And now there's a 7,000 patient trial that was supposed to have launched this month, but it's all on hold because obviously people can't go to research centers and uh, enroll. And some people will get the real antibody and some people will get the placebo. And we'll see. That's how medicine happens. And I, I welcome that. It's just going to take another four years. So if you find out you have an elevated lipoprotein A, you know, really what you got right now is to get the rest of the numbers in shape. And lifestyle, lifestyle, lifestyle is certainly what you should work on uh, primarily to get that improved. Beautiful. Well, as we, as we wrap up, Doc, and we head, head toward the finish line, I just have a, a few more questions for you. You know, it, it seems to me my observation of you is you have such a wonderful balance of whole food, nutritional, holistic-based approaches to treating your patients and the wisdom and the information you know you share publicly on your social media and your website, which we'll also link to in the show notes. But then you also you know, have mentioned the, the efficacy of pharmaceuticals, Western science, and it just seems to me that you have a great balance of the more holistic or shall we say Eastern approach, but also subscribe to the effectiveness of the right use of Western remedies as well. And I guess my curiosity and an overarching umbrella question for you is, how would you summarize your, your philosophy or your mission as a physician? Like, what's your true north? What's your guiding light? What's your philosophy? Yeah, you know, the, it really is. And you've heard it before, but not everybody listening to this has. The incredible ability of the body to prevent disease and to reverse disease by removing what's irritating and replacing it with what's healing. The incredible ability, you know, we rush to drugs, surgery, and exotic, you know, um, approaches, but we really, really can tame adult diabetes, type 2 diabetes. We can prevent it. We can reverse many cases. We certainly can diminish its impact in almost all cases, let alone, you know, some aspect of improving type 1 diabetes. We really can prevent and reverse existing heart disease of atherosclerosis in so many cases, but we rush to medicine and surgery and stents. That ship is changing. Let me just, if I don't mind, but it is that we 
cannot overlook and we must implement strategies and methods to teach medical students and nursing students and dental students, uh, every aspect that uh, lifestyle medicine is the preventive strategy. It's the economic strategy. It's the kind strategy that has to become absolutely built into the system. And there has to be reimbursement for doctors and nurses and systems to teach. Uh, you know, it doesn't all have to be the exact same diet because we'll probably not come up with that unity. But um, I just want to bring up so your listeners know, uh, you know, some of your listeners are very sophisticated. They were probably all very sophisticated. What they know of Nathan Pritikin and his amazing ability as an engineer to change the medical system to recognize that diet and fitness can, you know, reverse many, many serious diseases like heart disease, diabetes. And of course, Dr. Dean Ornish and Dr. Caldwell Esselstyn and Dr. Joel Furman and Dr. Neil Bernard and Dr. John McDougall, these lifestyle pioneers. But yet, if you lump all those studies together, it's a few hundred people, which is something that the paleo and meat community will remind us of very often, of the small size. So in November 2019, a study was announced, and about last week, the study was published, called the Ischemia Study. And very briefly, our government and a few other uh, international studies spent the most money ever on a heart trial, $100 million over a number of years to recruit just over 5,000 people with really badly blocked heart arteries symptoms of angina, chest tightness. They flunked their stress tests. These would have been just absolutely bullseyes for stent and bypass. And they had the, the courage to actually put half of them on medication, a naturally low-fat diet. It certainly wasn't as completely whole food plant-based as you and I eat, but it was better than the average diet. It was by definition a very low saturated fat diet and some fitness. And the other half, went right to the catheterization, the stent, and the bypass in the first 30 days. When uh, the results were added up, there was no difference in death, in um, need for hospitalization and such, but going more conservatively with medication, this was a medication study, plus lifestyle. To me, with over 5,000 people with the international press this has gotten, it confirms. Now, I think the results would have been even more astounding if we could have taken you know, uh, half of those 5,000 patients and put them on a nearly or completely whole food plant-based diet, uh, as we've learned from the smaller studies. But it really, really confirms the body can truly reverse damage done before there was an awareness or a plan, even at the later stages like these patients. So I'm very encouraged by this ischemia study published in the New England Journal of Medicine in April 2020. Wonderful. And if people want more resources from Dr. Joel Kahn, we'll have all of those in the show notes. We'll have links to all of the articles, all of the studies. And also, I'm going to throw in a few bonuses, Doc, because uh, I thought you did such a wonderful job on uh, the Joe Rogan podcast, on your appearances on The Doctors. Dr. Kahn has done some really, really incredible debates and, uh, and high-level um, sharing of information on some really wonderful platforms. We'll link to all those in the show notes at wellevator.com. And uh, Doc, right now, your um, your book, uh, Lipoprotein A, is the number one new release in cardiology on Amazon. So uh, for all the listeners, if you guys want to check that out and all of Dr. Khan's wonderful books that he's written over the years, those are all available on Amazon. And uh, Dr. Khan, where can people find you on social media and your website? Where can people hunt you down and, and uh, get more wisdom from you? Well, you're very kind. Website is drjoelkahn.com, but just to make it more complex, that's D-R-J-O-E-L-K-A-H-N.com, and it'll take you to my clinic and to uh, other places, including my social media. But I'm on Instagram every day, D-R-J-K-H-N, and Twitter, same thing, D-R-J-K-H-N, and still show up on Facebook. I have a Joel Kahn MD Facebook page I post on every day. Beautiful. And uh, for, for the locals in Metro Detroit, are you, uh, are you still doing the to-go? Is Green Space to-go serving up food right now? Are you guys uh, still feeding the people of Detroit? It is uh, creating meals that we are bringing to the hospital and donating to the fire department and the police. We are not open for retail. It was really a very interesting conversation with our employees and their own health risk. They just, they really voted that we're going to pull back. They didn't really want to uh, involve themselves with customers face-to-face. So it, it will reopen, I hope, very soon. 
Beautiful. Well, thank you for doing what you're doing to support the healthcare professionals and providing with that nourishment in their incredible battle right now. And again, to all the listeners, we thank you for being here on This Might Get Uncomfortable. And for anyone who wants to share your comments, you can go to the show notes for this episode at wellevator.com. Again, that's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. We'll have all of the links to Dr. Khan, all of the studies and articles and research that we mentioned here in the episode. And also for free health resources on physical, mental, emotional wellness, you guys can go and sign up for our newsletter at wellevator.com and enjoy all of the free health resources we have there. And any questions you want, feel free to comment and find us on social media, on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We're at Wellevator, W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. And Dr. Khan, it's always a pleasure, my friend. You're always such a wealth of love and information and, and sanity, especially now in an often confused and crazy world. And just want to thank you for taking the time to connect here today and, and share your wisdom with everyone. Well, I'll give you a shout out. Just yesterday, one of my friends told me I made an amazing recipe from Jason Robel's uh, book, Eternity. And actually, it clicked in my brain. And I remember you were so kind to ask me to write that introduction. That's not something I get asked all the time. So yeah, the bond is strong. You keep uh, healing the world the way you do. And I'll do it mine, which is very much overlapped. And Hopefully, we'll see uh, something good out of this very dark time. Yeah, and hopefully, I'll be home to see you and see the family soon because uh, I miss all you guys, my fellow Detroiters. So hopefully, we see each other in the flesh soon too, my friend. Peace. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.